The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist. I'm on a mission to find food truth and connect the dots between food health, and agriculture. And I'm really excited today because we have one of the nation's most respected experts on pesticides with us today. We have Dr. Warren Porter, who is with the Department of Zoology at the University of Wisconsin. Welcome, Dr. Porter. Hi there, Melinda. How are you? I'm great, and I'm thrilled that you're here to talk about a subject that is near and dear to my heart. Um, I was writing an article on butter, and I was looking at potential pesticide contamination, and through the course of talking to other colleagues, someone said, oh, well, you've got to talk to Dr. Porter at the University of Wisconsin, and that began a a string of email communications, and I thought, you know, you've got such wisdom in this area, I would love for you to share your expertise with our listeners. I should let everyone know that uh, you have expertise in pesticides and endocrine disruption, and you especially looked at low-level doses and timing. I have to ask you, what got you started looking at this area? (laughs) Actually, it was was very serendipitous. It was very early 70s, and my primary research area was um, how animals interact with their physical environment, sort of heat and mass transfer engineering applied to animals in in the real world. And I had developed along with the help from some wonderful colleagues here in mechanical engineering, models for how climate affects uh, the food and water requirements of animals. And so all of a sudden I had these really good models that could tell me how animals were functioning when they were healthy. And then I started wondering, well, what happens if they get sick? So I I started to do research on uh, low-level infections with a fellow named Dr. Tom Ewell in veterinary science, and he had a friend... Ron Hinsdale in bacteriology, who was doing some really interesting experiments on plant growth regulator compounds. And as we were starting to work with, with Tom, all of a sudden one day Ron comes in and he says, oh my goodness. And we said, well, what, what do you mean? And he says, I've just looked at the structure of one of these very common agricultural plant growth regulator compounds, and it has a structure almost exactly like a known immunosuppressant drug because he was a, an immune specialist. And we said, holy cow, do you suppose that some of these agricultural chemicals could be suppressing the immune system? So we got a grant from the EPA to start looking at that question, and sure enough, every single one of them turned out to be immunologically active, and it was active at really low concentrations. Then we started to look at some very common pesticides like aldicarb, which was used on potatoes and watermelons and citrus and things like that, and discovered that, my goodness, it was immunosuppressive at one part per billion, which was a 1,000 times lower than EPA said was totally safe. And uh, so, my goodness, and the worst and the, and the most perplexing thing was that the greatest effects were at the lowest doses. Right. And uh, we couldn't believe it. I mean, we'd never seen anything like this. So we repeated the experiment, got the same results. We repeated it again, we got the same results. We repeated it a fourth time, got the same results. We we called in some of the best statisticians in the world who were at Madison and 
said, we, we really would like to have you look at these data and make sure that the analyses that we're doing are correct. And so they became co-authors with us, and yes, absolutely, the, what we had was real. Now, I'm assuming that the chemical industries that produce these compounds weren't pleased with your findings. <laughs> That's quite a story, because uh, we submitted it to science to have it published in a premier journal here in the U.S., and it was in review, and all of a sudden there was this big watermelon scare in California because it turned out farmers had discovered that aldicarb makes watermelons grow bigger. And so guess what they did? <laughs> they added more of the stuff to the water that was irrigating the melons, and now all of a sudden people were eating those melons, and they were getting sick, and here was a paper about to come out and say, by the way, you may also have been immunosuppressed. And that was when AIDS was starting to rear its ugly head, big time, and we were thinking, uh-oh, national panic here. This stuff is used everywhere. Uh, so I sent a copy of the manuscript to Lee Thomas, who was the head of the EPA at that time, saying, uh, this is in review. We'd like you to keep, uh, please keep it confidential, but we wanted you to have the opportunity to prepare for when this thing hits the front pages. And that was a critical mistake because mm. within a week, they, the EPA leaked it to the press and then accused us of publishing in the press and cut off all our funding and told us forget about ever coming back here again for money. And that's what happened. So, and they badmouthed us all up and down the East Coast, so we couldn't get it published. It took us about three years to find a reputable journal out west that would send it out for review, and then it was published. But by that time, of course, all the hubbub had died down. So that was my introduction to uh, working with pesticides. This is such a tragic story. And uh, I think it continues today, you know, as as we see that's that's the aldicarb story. Yeah. And then and then now we're looking at atrazine contamination of public water supplies. We're looking at, you know, Roundup or this herbicide resistance genetic trait. You know, I look a lot at, at media literacy or the messages that we receive from the chemical companies or from the agrochemical companies and they say this is the only way that we have to feed the world. You know, we've got to use these genetically modified crops. And the majority of them have some sort of herbicide res- herbicide resistance, as you know. And one of the conversations that we had had online was, which pesticides are you most concerned with today? And you emailed back and said, well, I'm concerned about some of the most common and abundant ones, such as atrazine and Roundup, because of their ubiquity in our food and water supplies. And their multiple biological effects at very low doses. So what should we do? Ah, very simple. It's a very simple solution. There, uh, firstly, I'll tell you what we do in our family. We, have, we buy organic, everything we can buy organic, because what that does is shift market share. It puts money in the pockets of people who are producing healthy, safe food rather than food that's laced with chemicals. We have a very good water filter on our water supply, and uh, we, diet, we, we watch our diet, and uh, we exercise regularly. These are things that everybody can do without really changing the way they live very much at all. And what it will do, that's the only way that this is ever going to be solved, because EPA regulations and, and industry pressures are going to continue and, and and what most people don't realize is how very sensitive companies are to sales changes. I mean, a change of half of 1% is enough to send 
chills down the spines of uh, uh, board of directors and chief executive officers of companies because uh, no company can survive if they can't sell their product. And so this is really all about educating the American public about how very low-level chemicals, especially mixtures, uh, the stuff that you actually buy off the shelf, not with the EPA tests, all of the ways that it can alter your immune, your hormonal, your neurological systems, and uh, developmental patterns of fetuses. Because uh, we and, and people around the world are finding now that uh, these pesticides uh, have, firstly, they can get into every cell of the body, and secondly, and that means fetal cells as well as brain cells. So you're giving these very reactive chemicals access to the command and control center of your body. And, well, I don't, there's so many different directions I could go, but I should shut up right now unless you ask me some other questions. Well, I, I think that you make a very um, interesting point about the, the consumer response and the sensitivity of companies to even minute changes in sales because it really does explain what I would call propaganda coming from the industry. You know, certainly this soft and fuzzy, you know, we need these products to feed the world. That's one of the messages. But the the other messages are that, you know, these eco-tree-hugging people are kind of crazy and the glyphosate, for example, or Roundup is very uh, non-toxic. You know, you hear these kinds of message themes running through the press. And I think it's really important that people like you and people like me and, and moms who are listening to this program go out and tell other moms, you know, do a big word-of-mouth campaign that we are rejecting the very compounds or foods that are treated with these compounds because they threaten future generations. Absolutely, they do. Uh, but I, if you don't mind, I'd like to respond to the claim about we have to have these things for to feed the world. Please do. Um, uh, and I also want to respond to the argument that these things are safe and why they can claim safety uh, and, and why things really are not safe. So let me first start with, with food production. Great. The Rodeo Institute in Coostown, Pennsylvania, is one of the world's premier uh, research institutes looking at organic food production versus chemical produ production methods, and they're basically doing it side by side. And in uh, 2005, there was a paper published in Bioscience that summarized a 20-year trial side by side in the same fields of uh, organically produced crops and chemically produced crops. And what they found was that in good years, when there was adequate rainfall, there was no statistical difference between the two production methods. You could not distinguish between them. It was in the bad years when the difference happened, and the difference was not in favor of the chemical-produced foods. It was in favor of the organically-produced foods, which produced up to two times the amount of food per acre that the uh, chemically-produced soils were producing. And the reason for that with that organic soils where you're not poisoning the microorganisms or the earthworms that, that create air passageways and the mycorrhizae that produce that, that supply nutrients to the roots of plants, those organic soils store water. They've got a lot of porosity and so when it when it does rain, they grab that water, they suck it up, they hold it. And so when drought years come along the ironic thing is that organic agriculture will generate more production than chemical agriculture. Uh, 
And this was, there's, there's another study that was done in England uh, of comparable duration that showed the same kind of differences in productivity or the lack of differences in productivity. So it's not true. It's not true at all. There's not a crop on this planet that can't be grown organically, and they are. And that's why the organic food industry is growing so rapidly, because it, economically it's, it's way in favor of the farmers who do that. Now, I want to also go to this other point about, oh, this stuff is safe. The reason that they claim it's safe is because the federal legislation, the federal regulatory agencies, do not look, and I want to repeat this, they do not study hormonal effects. They do not study immune effects. They do not study neurological or learning effects. They do not study sperm counts. All of these things that affect our biology due to low-dose exposures are not part of the testing paradigm. All they're asking is, with the with this testing that's done in the EPA, is does it kill you or does it maim you, obviously? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's most of what's done. So if you're not testing for the sensitive things that alter your function, then you can say, oh, there no da- there's no data on, on any problems with health, so it must be safe. Hmm. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Warren Porter, who is with the Department of Zoology at the University of Wisconsin. And uh, his expertise is, uh, well, multi, multi areas of expertise, but he has a PhD in physiological ecology, and we're talking about his research on endocrine disrupting pesticides and how they affect the human body. I wanted to ask you about these Increases in allergies and ADHD and autism seen in children that cannot be fully explained by better diagnostics. Do you think that some of these pesticides are related to the rise that we're seeing? Well, let me put it this way. We know that these, virtually everything that we've looked at, the agricultural chemicals, are capable at low concentrations of suppressing immune function. Now, there was a paper by Dietert and Dietert in 2007 or 2008 showing that low-level immune suppression is associated with all the diseases that you just listed, plus a whole lot more. Hmm. You know, it's interesting. When I first started practicing as a clinical dietitian, I never saw anyone, well, I shouldn't say anyone, it was few and far between where someone couldn't tolerate wheat or gluten. And now it seems like Everybody knows somebody who's got some sort of gluten intolerance. And many of us have been sitting around wondering, how could that be? Would the gut also be affected by these immune-altering pesticides? Um, I have no idea what the consequence of that might be, but I've been teaching Zoology 101 for a long, long time. And when I first used to ask my class, how many of you know of someone who has a learning disability, mm. I might see three or four hands go up out of a class of 500. Now, when I ask that question, virtually everyone's hand goes up. Mm. Uh, there's just been, and, 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 and more and more you see in the scientific literature that there are links between all of these neurological problems, these immune problems, and uh, exposures to various kinds of chemicals that are in our environment all the time, including agricultural chemicals. Yeah, and too often the disciplines don't cross-pollinate. You know, we don't 
dietitians study in one area. We don't communicate with necessarily the biologists or the zoologists or the plant chemists. And I think that it would be really important if we had more of an ecologically based educational system where we could put these pieces of the puzzle together. I think that this kind of, I know that the educational system is trying to promote that kind of thing. Certainly it's happening at the university levels, and the federal granting agencies are now, uh, and the review panels are now demanding a lot more cross-disciplinary uh, kind of research. So I think we're going to learn a whole lot more about this, and also uh, we're getting research equipment and scientific procedures that are allowing us to really look at really complex interdisciplinary questions that we wouldn't even have been able to think about asking even five or ten years ago. Well, there's reason to have hope then. I'm glad, oh, absolutely. I'm glad that you mentioned that. You mentioned that you recommended water filters. Is there a kind of water filtration system that you think is um, beneficial over the others? <laughs> um, yes, I do have my own biases, but I, I, I don't want to mention them on the air, I, I, would, I would suggest instead that I think every state has a, a state agency that evaluates claims of water filtration systems, and each water filtration system has to file, a company has to file with the state a document that specifies what it takes out of the water and uh, what, it, what it takes out, what it really perform, how it performs, and then the state agencies evaluate these and test to see whether or not they're, they're, they're on, the, on the up and up or not. And that's exactly what I did. I went to the state of Wisconsin and I asked the people there, you know, where's your list of uh, the water filtration products sold here and, and what's the wrap sheet on each one of them? So they gave them to me. It's right on the web and probably most people can get it off the web uh, from their state agency. And uh, I found one that just had about three or four pages of listings of things that it took out of the water, and that's the one I bought. Is that a reverse osmosis system, or is it a carbon filter? It's a carbon filter with four membranes wrapped around it, and the company that manufactures it uh, has a whole series of patents on this. Uh, I, I, I bought mine simply because the, uh, the carbon filter uses water pressure, and so I don't have to worry about uh, if the power fails because a reverse osmosis system may uh, not function too well when the power is off. And so it also you tend to get faster processing. But it's an it's an individual decision, and and there are good reverse osmosis systems out there too. Sure, you know the organic center that's located out west in Chuck Benbrook recently released a report saying that since GMO crops were introduced back in the late 90s we are seeing more than 300 million pounds more pesticides used today. <laughs> that's the other thing. That's, that's, so, that's really, he's absolutely right. And, and the interesting thing about this is, and that people don't realize this, is that genetically engineered crops are not really there to increase the yields, although there have been yield increases, but they come at a huge cost. Mm -hmm. The main reason for making them is to be able to sell more pesticides because you're absolutely right. That's what farmers do. They have a crop that's, that's resistant to Roundup, so by golly, they blast the land with Roundup mm -hmm. or with atrazine uh, if there happens to be an atrazine-resistant one. And they're working on those, too. Mm -hmm. And the other interesting thing is that genetically engineered foods 
that are resistant to these chemicals, you can count on them having higher concentrations of pesticides. Mm. This is what people don't realize, that, that, you're, that you're actually buying something that you know is going to have more pesticides. For example, when Roundup was first started to be used on soybeans, and the allowable concentration in soybeans was three parts per million. Well, it turned out that farmers were putting so much on their crops that the seeds were coming in at 20 parts per million. All of a sudden, all these GMO expensive crops couldn't be sold. So what the chemical industry did was went to the EPA and said, we need to raise the tolerance, otherwise we can't sell these beans. And so the EPA said, okay, and all of a sudden the tolerance was 20 parts per million. (sighs) Nobody told the public about that. Of course. And then they went out to Australia and they went down to Brazil and some other places and did exactly the same thing. And all of a sudden, the limit on on allowable Roundup had uh, jumped uh, about an order of magnitude. Now, I know you've been involved in policies, and you've got a great website, by the way, and I want our listeners to know that um, if if you just Google Warren Porter, um, it'll take you right to his homepage at the University of Wisconsin. And if you go to the outreach section, you can download some good resources on all of the topics that we're talking about. But one of the um, links is to the endocrine disruption site. And there's an Endocrine Disruption Prevention Act of 2009. I'm sure you've been actively involved in <laughs> reviewing this. Yes, uh, it's... Uh some wonderful things are happening with the current administration and the current EPA. I mean, the EPA has uh, all of a sudden come alive. So I'm very optimistic, uh, at least as long as this administration is in, that uh, we will begin to get some federal changes. Uh, they're moving in many different directions. They've got an enormous backlog to deal with based on what prior administrations have done, or not done, I should say. And I think everybody can, should clap their hands for joy uh, as, at what's happening in Washington right now. Well, I uh, do have one comment about that, however. What do you think about the appointments of both Beachy and Siddiqui, who I don't have with me uh, in front of me the Beachy history, but Siddiqui's uh, past included a stint at Crop Life America. Yeah, well, uh, I, I wouldn't want to say that the EPA is all really white right now, but uh, and, and you do have some people still fighting to keep uh, some of the uh, some people in there who who share the industry's view about all of this but uh, I want to say in general there have been some very positive changes happening and and so I'm encouraged in that sense good I always encourage consumers to go to the whitehouse.gov website and make your comments known I, I really do believe that someone is actually reading and listening for the first time in a very long time mm-hmm. I agree I wanted to ask you something else, and it has to do with an email communication we had and a comment that you made. You had mentioned that multiple pesticides become more potent when they are in combination with nitrates. Yes, and that's because nitrates will operate to shut down your defensive enzymes Mm. in your liver. So if you're trying to... I need to back up a little and give you a little bit of the biology here. Once you become sexually mature and start making reproductive hormones, these are referred to as steroid hormones or fat-soluble hormones. And these are the hormones uh, that, if you keep making them all the time, I mean, we'd be bouncing off the walls. So there has to be a way to get rid of them. 
So one of the functions of the liver is to, is to meter that and try to keep those concentrations pretty stable. But those enzymes have a dual role. They are also detoxifying enzymes uh, because most of the really toxic stuff that comes into your body is also fat-soluble. And so in some cases, these uh, P450 enzymes, as they're called, are able to break down some, especially the natural toxicants that come in from things like soybeans, which have phytoestrogens in them, things like that. Uh, let's see, where was I going with all of this? We were talking about the nitrates oh, yeah, potentiating. Yeah. So, so what the nitrates do is they basically will suppress these defensive P450 enzymes or, or alter their function so they don't work as well. Mm. And because of that, all of a sudden, it's sort of like tying your hands behind your back and letting somebody come in and slap you in the stomach, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And this is the other reason also why infants and elderly people are far more at risk from exposure to pesticides because... Uh, they don't have the same levels of sex steroid hormones. I mean, fetuses and babies don't have very, have very low levels, and so there are no defensive enzymes in the liver because they're not needed to break down these uh, sex hormones yet. And the same way with elderly people who have passed their reproductive age, their level of testosterone and estrogen, the sex hormones, begin to decline, and so the same enzymes that break them down in the liver also decline. And so elderly people are far more vulnerable, uh, just as uh, fetuses and infants are, to exposure to these toxic chemicals. They they have their hands tied behind their backs, in in a sense. Dr. Porter, our time is up. Already. Already. Uh, Yeah, I would love to actually continue this conversation at another time, and I'm sure our listeners would love to hear more of what you have to say. Sure. I do want to ask you, just quickly, to leave us with with a charge. What can we do today, right now, to make a difference? Oh, what you can do today to make a difference is simply buy healthy food for yourself and your family. It'll okay. make a difference for your family. It'll make a difference to the producers, the organic producers, and it will shift the market share and encourage industry to begin to produce more healthy food, which consumers will buy. Excellent. Thank you so much for your time. We've been speaking with Dr. Warren Porter, professor of zoology at the University of Wisconsin, who has a specialty in endocrine-disrupting pesticides. I want to remind our listeners that Food Sleuth Radio is produced at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Thank you for listening. And again, Dr. Porter, thank you so much for your time and expertise. It was my pleasure.